It's watering time, everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered with me, your host, Travis Michael Fleming, where you can get your faith saturated with the things of God so that you can saturate your world with the knowledge of who Jesus is. Well, today we are continuing our discussion on soul care. You know, the Bible talks a great deal about soul care, but it's something that I find that while the scripture does talk about it, it's something that we in our contemporary world often lack. We'll talk about making disciples, we'll talk about service, we'll talk about church, we'll talk about people, we'll talk about a lot of different things. We'll talk about the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that is the Great Commission, something that our Lord calls us to do, but there is also a great omission, and that's taking care of our souls. And that's led led to so many weaknesses and evils and injustices and failures and depression because we're not doing what God calls us to do. You know, Christian mathematician and Frenchman Blaise Pascal once said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. That's very true. We have a very difficult time being alone because it is the emptiness of our, in our souls that is too difficult to bear with. Pastor John Ortberg, in his book, Soul Keeping, said, For the soul to be well, it needs to be with God. Soul care is the great omission in the Christian life. We can go to services, serve people, do what is right, and still starve our souls. We need to get alone with God and give our entire being to him. Ortberg again says this, The soul seeks God with its whole being because it is desperate to be whole. The soul is God-smitten and God-crazy and God-obsessed. My mind may be obsessed with idols. My will may be enslaved to habits. My body may be consumed with appetites, but my soul will never find rest until it rests in God. Augustine said that we have a God-shaped vacuum in our souls, and we will never find rest until we fill it with God. Today we're going to examine the lives of two sisters, Mary and Martha. And as we listen in on their story, or we we peer into it, we're going to find something about the heart of God and also learn about our own hearts as well. For like her, we are busy and consumed with many things. But God speaks to us through his word to show us who he is and what he desires for us to be. So we are in Luke chapter 10, and we read in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 the story of Mary and Martha. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, we fade into this story in Luke chapter 10. Let me just set the stage for a bit. Jesus is entering a village. Now, social custom and ancient Near East practice placed a supreme value on hospitality, something that is still prevalent within other cultures or majority world cultures, but not in our Western cultures today. It's not something that's highly valued. 
And Jesus especially would have been a revered and honored guest in the home. Martha welcomed Jesus to her house, and she's one of three siblings. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, their brother, and all three are Jesus' followers. And the social laws of hospitality at that time and in that place valued or placed a supreme value taking care of guests and meeting their needs, which meant food, rest, hygiene, etc. Now, Martha invites Jesus into the house. He comes in, makes himself at home as he often did. Jesus would then have reclined at the table, as was his practice, and then would teach and speak to those who were with him. Now, as Jesus is teaching, Martha is busy trying to take care of her guests. She's trying to be a good host, which could have been quite a substantial group of people. See, Jesus often had his disciples in tow, as well as numerous other followers besides the twelve. This could have been quite the group. I mean, with that size of a group, that meant a lot of work for Martha. And Martha's trying to meet the needs of all the people, the equivalent of giving them tea or snack or cooking something, which could be quite labor-intensive. There aren't stoves or microwaves, but pots with charcoal or wood burning underneath them. Now, we have listeners in different parts of the world. We have listeners in India and Nepal and Bangladesh. And I know when I was on the northern part of India, really close to the Nepalese border, we had the opportunity to interact and visit a home. That was right on the side of a mountain. It had no electricity. And the house had one room that was designated for cooking. And it was black in there. It was had low ceilings. It was a dirt floor. And in order to get in there was not an easy thing to do. Just kind of stooping in and walking in, it was quite unpleasant. As you are trying to look for the different ingredients, trying to cook, trying to have a fire and the smoke that's filling everything around It was not an easy thing. And that's very similar to the world I believe that Mary and Martha are in. This is a labor-intensive exercise for her to take care of so many guests. So it's a big job. And needless to say, she's frustrated because her sister should be back helping her, not sitting there listening to Jesus. Now, I imagine she was trying to get her sister's attention in a way that didn't shame her sister. So she might have tried to get in Mary's eyesight and try to give her that look, that facial expression that lets her know that she is frustrated and she needs help right now. But Mary was either aloof or she was enamored with Jesus and there was no getting her attention. Finally, she's, she realizes her sister's not budging or getting it. So she can't take it anymore and knows that Mary will listen to Jesus. So she interrupts. She goes to Jesus because she's mad at her sister and a little frustrated that Jesus doesn't see what she needs either. She says this, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now she said what she needed to say. She thought that Jesus would intervene. Jesus is the just one. Jesus is the good one. Jesus is the one who understands. Jesus is the the advocate that we have. So she's waiting for Jesus to pronounce his rebuke on Mary and to tell Mary to go help Martha. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. (laughs) That wasn't quite the answer that she was anticipating. But what was Jesus saying there? What did he mean? 
He wasn't trying to say that serving wasn't important or it didn't matter. After all, he came as one who serves, Luke 22, 27. It's also something that we're told to do, serve one another, Galatians 5, 13, 1 Peter 4, 10. And, and we are to practice hospitality, which was what she was doing, according to 1 Peter 4, 9. Now, what could it mean then? He is talking really about soul care, and Mary needed it at that moment in time, and she chose the appropriate thing for that moment. Soul care is actually what it sounds like. The soul is the inner dimension of who we are, our essence. We are both body and soul, material and flesh, yet spiritual and thought and feeling, and we're to nourish our souls because soul care is about nourishing the inner dimension of who we are. It is connected to the material. As Theologian Dallas Willard writes, soul is here defined as the hidden or spiritual side of the person. It includes an individual's thoughts and feelings along with heart or will with its intents and choices. It also includes an individual's bodily life and social relations, which in their inner meaning and nature are just as hidden as the thoughts and feelings. So you see, it's that part of who we are that we need to take care of because, as Willard says again, our soul is like an inner stream of water, which gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other element of our life. When that stream is as it should be, we are constantly refreshed and exuberant in all we do because our soul itself is then profusely rooted in the vast of God and his kingdom, including nature, and all else within us is enlivened and directed by that stream. You know, I think that for many of us, this is a really welcome truth, because it's one that is not highly valued in our production society, where it is achieve and get at all costs, which is why this subject of soul care is often so disregarded or misunderstood. We fail to grasp the importance of this subject, and there are a variety of reasons for this, and I can think of three. First up, I believe that we're confused by what soul care is. We might have unrealistic views of what it is. We may think it's that we are being faithful to God, doing what he wants us to do, going to church, serving, giving, sacrificing, and yet our souls are starving. I mean, we rationalize that, saying we have we are real people in real life, and we, we say that we're not monks living on the side of a mountain, that we're busy people who go to work, have responsibilities, children to take care of, uh, responsibilities with our parents or cousins, uh, errands to run, things to do, jobs, etc. And the thought of sitting down for a few hours or hours on end or to go to some monastery or cloister seems like a luxury that we can't afford. We may think it's for the super spiritual or the religious as well, further contributing to our confusion. We have a lot of different ideas on what soul care is, and we have to pare that down. Now, being confused isn't the only issue we have, that we're also just distracted. And this is where our busyness comes in. We are too busy, too busy to commune, too busy to rest, too busy to read, too busy to pray, too busy to witness. And we may be busy doing good things, going to church, teaching our kids, doing our jobs, and the list may go on and on. And the entire list comes together to create this menacing monster that warns and threatens us if we get too close. Ortberg again says, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, COVID has done a lot of that. COVID has stopped us in our tracks. It's forced us to be alone, to be quiet. And it's something that many people cannot handle because their emptiness is so magnified. And that's why we need to stop and 
preach to ourselves, remind ourselves and our souls that God is the sovereign God, that he is our king, that he is our Lord, and that our first responsibility is to him. And this is where the third problem comes in, or the reason why I believe that many people shy away from soul care is because they are scared of soul care, meaning they are scared of what God is going to say to them if they be quiet before him. They are afraid of what he's going to have them do something that they're going to have to give up that they love, an idol in their heart is going to be exposed, a relationship that they're in, that they have built into an idol or its own God is going to have to be brought down. They are scared, scared of having to sacrifice, scared of having to give up something or admit a wrong or make restitution or maybe um, losing a friend or feeling less than or without or disappointing parents or grandparents or ancestors. We are scared of taking responsibility of having to go back and change things or scared of the sense of foreboding regret that covers over us like a cloud. Ortberg again comments, if you ask people why, who don't believe in God why they don't, the number one reason will be suffering. However, if you ask people who believe in God when they grew most spiritually, the number one answer will be suffering. Now, here's what he means by that, is that the reason people don't want to go to God or they reject God is because of suffering in the world. But yet, it's our suffering that does bring us closer to God, that reminds us that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves, that we are not our own gods, that we cannot live by our own truth, that we need a truth that's greater than ourselves, that we need something greater than ourselves, and that is God and who he is and what he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, his burial in the tomb and his resurrection from the dead, as well as his ascension into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God, the father awaiting the day when the fullness of his kingdom will come. And we, we need to recognize that our souls need God and that to not follow God is actually more scary than it is to follow. Because when we follow, and it, we may suffer, but God doesn't cause us to suffer to hurt us, but to heal us. Just like a physician doesn't use the scalpel to hurt you, but to heal you. God is performing spiritual surgery on our souls. And he will give us over to our sins in order to bring us to himself, to show us that sin is evil and it's a dictator, but he is a benevolent, loving God who desires our absolute best. Now, I think as we explore this topic, it is necessary to note some various distinctions within soul care. There are some things that we need to understand before we get a good grasp of soul care in all of its dimensions. It's, it's like the ABCs that caution our soul care. You know, there are distinctions, and here's the A, but there are distinctions between acknowledging and embracing soul care. We can acknowledge our bankruptcy, our spiritual bankruptcy. But until we embrace it and make it a priority of our life, we'll never be any different. I can say that I love my wife, but I never show her in my calendar, show her in my words, show her in my body language and service. She'll really never know that I love her. So there is a difference between acknowledging and embracing it. And we must show it in our calendars. We must arrange our days so that we are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in our everyday life with God. I would highly recommend reading about George Mueller. 
George Mueller and his book, Answers to Prayer. He's one of the most remarkable saints of the 19th century. His prayer life is astounding. It is challenging. It is convicting. He is a man that both D.L. Moody, the great American evangelist, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great British prince of preachers, said they felt dirty in his presence. He was so set apart by God. He started an orphanage that was nourishing thousands of children, taking care of them, and he was doing that by prayer alone. And the answers to his prayers are extraordinary. But one of the things that he said was his first and primary responsibility was to get his soul happy in God each day, to take that time to get his soul happy in God. And so we must do the same. We must arrange our days so that we are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in our everyday life with God. Now, secondly, when we have the A, there is a difference between acknowledging and embracing. But here's B, there is a difference between being and doing. We have a tendency, especially in the West, to define ourselves by what we do, especially men. We're all about what we produce, what we have accomplished. And since soul care doesn't offer much applause and can't be measured on a stat sheet, we go back to doing what we can see. Now, if I were to illustrate this, it's another story from Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus is at the peak of his popularity and knew he was about to go through one of the hardest moments of his life. He knew what awaited him. And as religious leaders are plotting at how to remove him, we have him go to the village of Bethany, which is about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. He goes to the house of Simon the leper, which is itself in itself is pretty incredible. Either the man was a leper still, which is doubtful because he was to live apart from everybody else. The more likely scenario is that he was healed by Jesus and kept the label Simon the leper. Now, Jesus is at Simon's home when a woman comes in that identifies that John identifies as Mary. And that's the same Mary in our passage for today. Her brother Lazarus had just been raised from the dead a few days before, which was absolutely phenomenal, incredible. She's still dealing with all of the emotions that are swirling in her mind. He was dead. She was mourning. She was preparing everything. Everybody was around giving their condolences. And now he's alive. And she is so grateful and appreciative thankful and it's just overflowing from her for all that Jesus has done so she offers up to him what is the most valuable to her and we pick that up in Matthew chapter 26 verse 6 through 13 now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table and when the disciples saw it they were indignant saying why this waste For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her." So here's the the situation. She takes some pretty expensive ointment, pure nard, as is told to us in Mark 14, 3 and John 12, uh, 12, 3. It's a perfume oil used for solemn acts of devotion. She, of course, pours it on him and his disciples who are in ministry mode reply, why this waste for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, in their mind, this was a complete waste. It wasn't where they thought it should be. 
because they were all about performing, but she was about adoring. They were about doing. She was about being. She was revealing her heart and her gratitude for all that Jesus had done. So we have this distinction between acknowledging and embracing and between being and doing. And lastly, there is a distinction between communion and communication. Now, communication primarily deals with words and concept, but communion is beyond words. If there are any words at all, they are usually reduced to the most basic terms that seeks to show the real desire of our hearts, the greatest hurts, the base feelings and desires. See, this is where God truly seeks to meet us. There are no masks there, no pretending, no acting better than we are. It is really who we are, our naked humanity ready to be clothed by his loving deity. This is the difference, by the way, between reading scripture and having scripture read us. I may read the words on the page over and over and over again and go away and feel nothing. But if I read the words on the page and not allow them to speak to me about him and that I'm missing it, consider the example uh, for a moment of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is passing through the city of Jericho with his disciples when blind Bartimaeus learns it is Jesus passing by. So he begins to cry out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. And people around him rebuke him for bringing so much attention to himself and to those around him. Now, for those that are in Eastern cultures, you know exactly what is going on here. There's an expression that is used in many Asian cultures that nail that sticks out gets the hammer. And this is guy is calling attention to himself and they're trying to silence him. And remember, Jesus has become somewhat of an important figure, but Bartimaeus doesn't stop or cave into their pressure as they're trying to silence him. In fact, the text says that he cried out all the more in Mark 10, 48. Jesus hears him, stops, and has Bartimaeus brought to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? In Mark 10, 51, Bartimaeus asked for the depth of his need. He wanted his sight and Jesus gives it to him. So here's the question that I have for each one of us. And I mean, what can we learn from this? Yes, but if Jesus were in front of you right now and you were to call out to him and he comes to you and you're going to offer up the, the depth of your soul and he says to you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you say? What do you say? What do you really want right where you're at right now? If you're running or if you're walking and you have your headphones in or if you're in your car, or you're sitting in front of your computer, no matter where you are, if you're in the bush, if you're in Uganda or in South Africa or Lesotho or if you're in Papua New Guinea or if you're in China, if you're in Japan or if you're in Australia, no matter where you are right now, Jesus says to you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you say? What is your true heart's desire? You see, that's communion now. Not just communication. You may respond in words, but you are offering up your heart and your soul. That's where communion really begins. When you lay before God what you really want or need from him, that's communion. Now, Ortberg again says this, The soul without a center finds its identity in externals. My temptation when my soul is not centered in God is try to control my life. In the Bible, this is spoken of, spoken of in terms of lifting up of one's soul. The prophet Habakkuk said that the opposite of living in faithful dependence on God is to lift your soul up in pride. The psalmist says that the person who can live in God's presence is the one who has not lifted up their soul to an idol. 
When my soul is not centered in God, I define myself by my accomplishments or my physical appearance or my title or my important friends. When I lose these, I lose my identity. You see, what he's saying there is that we lift up our souls to all kinds of things all the time, whether it's pride, whether it's our accomplishments, we, we offer up our souls to these things, but we will never find satisfaction because they're not meant to be the center of our hearts and our lives. It is Jesus and him alone. And we must make sure we are reoriented to him. And that's where communion occurs. And this is the type of communion that all real Christians truly long for. It's the type of communion that the Holy Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father, or like a mama crying for its baby, or a deer panting for streams of water. However, this type of soul care doesn't happen by accident. It needs effort. Therefore, there is a decision, a decision that we are to make. Every so often, we are to make a decision for our souls. In fact, it needs to be a daily thing. This doesn't happen accidentally, or it doesn't happen by osmosis, nor can it be something that someone makes us do, or we do simply for their benefit to appease them. We have to make this decision to practice soul care. As Ortberg again says, the psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me. And Paul says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. They speak to the need for our souls to be completely and thoroughly with God. But as both these verses suggest, it does not happen automatically. Set and take captive are active verbs, implying that we have a role in determining where our souls rest. So it's a decision that we make to still or quiet our souls. We have to be quiet for a bit, to slow down as we read in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We do this to remind our souls who it is we belong to. We look to hear or, or we stop to listen for the still, small voice, just as the prophet Elijah did. God had told Elijah to go up to Mount Horeb and then wait for him there. And this was after Elijah had defeated the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he had brought back a revival in Israel. There had been a famine because of Israel's wickedness. And yet the people were turning back to God and he prayed that it would rain and it began to rain. And that was after the fire came down from heaven to consume the sacrifice in his cage match that he had with the 450 prophets of Baal. This was a victory of victories. And yet... Upon the threat of the wicked queen Jezebel, he runs for his life, falls down under a broom tree, and prays to God that he might die and that he is an unfaithful servant of God. And God causes him to fall asleep, get some rest, wakes him up to get some food, and then sends him on a journey to Mount Horeb. And he gets there, and we pick this up in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11 through 13. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, we have to be quiet. And recognize the things around us that are not from God. 
We have to quiet our hearts, and that may take some time. And if we do, then we can hear what God is saying to us through his word, prayer, and his people. And like Elijah, we have to silence the distractions. We are distracted by many things. Cell phones, busyness, which at times can be very good things. Martha was distracted by serving Jesus. That was a very good thing. But what Jesus says that Mary was doing was better at that moment. She was communing. It was better. You know, I have found that the devil does a great job of getting at me 24 hours a day. Part of that's because of my cell phone and other technologies. And so what I've done is tried to remove those distractions. I removed my cell phone from my room, and my family's done the same. I've tried to quiet and set certain hours for entertainments, but I've also set time to seek God. And when I get up in the morning, I don't go to my cell phone right away, or at least I try not to. I want to take that time to commune with God first so he can speak into my life. I think many of us need to silence the distractions, to turn it off, to close the computer, to put away the phone. We silence the distractions. And then with our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength, we seek the Savior. Mary sought her Savior, and Jesus declared that it was the good portion and that it will not be taken away from her. We can have many things taken away from us. Money, homes, clothing, jobs, status, reputation, security. But the one thing that we cannot have taken away from us is Jesus. He is the only one who will truly last. He is the king, and there is no power that can ever dethrone him. So God is laying before us the call to seek him now to sit at his feet, to commune with him. It's time for us all to do business with God, to give him our hearts, to hear from our master and king. Now, for some who are listening to my voice, you don't know this king. You don't know Jesus. You only know about him. It's time for you to believe in Jesus Christ, the one whom God has sent to bring salvation to the world the one who has paid the price for our sin, who defeated the powers of sin and death by his death on the cross. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And 40 days after that, after he had been seen by so many, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, awaiting for the day when he will come in the fullness of his kingdom. But in order to follow him, we have to believe that he is God's son sent to save the world from our sin and that we need to trust in him, which means repenting of our sins, laying down our arms of rebellion and receiving him as Lord and savior of our lives. That's what you have to do. And you do that simply by calling on him and saying, Lord, I am a sinner and I ask you to save me. I believe that you died from our sin, my sins. I repent of my sins, turn away from them and turn to you. And when you do that, You are a child of God. Now for others who have walked with Jesus but have allowed the distractions and busyness of life to come in and crowd out God, it's time to repent and turn back to him. To have him reorient your life. To turn back to him and ask him to restore and renew you. We have to embrace him all over again. Jim Collins, the great business author, in his book, Good to Great, says that 
the enemy of great is the good. And what he means by that is we just do good enough. We don't seek the greatness that comes from God. I think spiritually there is a parallel. We can spend our time serving. We can do many different things. But what we really need to do, first and foremost, is to get alone with our Creator and our Maker and allow Him to pour into us and renew us and reorient us. And when we do that, we will find peace, purpose, and direction. Well, this is the end of today's episode. I would invite you to subscribe, to share this podcast with other people, to throw us a like, to give us a rating online, to share this with other people. We believe that that God has called us to this ministry to saturate the world with the good news of Jesus Christ so that others can saturate their worlds with the good news of Jesus. And I would encourage you to, if you have any questions or you want to know more about us, to go online at poloswater.org or find us on Facebook. Feel free to drop us a like or ask a question and we'll do our best to get back to you and answer your questions because we want to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus and saturate your world with the things of God. I'd invite you also to tune in next week as we continue to explore our need for soul care and taking that time to rest in God. With that in mind, this is Travis Michael Fleming with Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.